Kia ora everybody, Rebet Hollis here and welcome to Rebet Live episode 330. I hope your week is going well. My week is going bloody great. About to go play golf, lose a bunch of balls, drink a little bit of whiskey and definitely cheat so I can try and win the round against my good buddy uh, Andrew. We're going to go hit some. Anyway, enough about the golf, let's get into some business chat for today's guest. Today's guest is Dave Schumach. He's currently the Chief Executive Officer of Good Nature which is a globally minded conservation tech company committed to rewilding the world through automatic start and toxin free traps to keep pests under control in the backyards big and small all over the globe but he didn't just start from there he started back in the advertising world in the marketing game I initially first came through Dave when I was in my early snowball career when he was the brand manager for uh, DB Export Gold then he transitioned to uh, Seoul's global marketing manager and Seoul's global brand director based out of Netherlands then he transitioned to uh, the chief marketing officer of a company called Van Moof, which was one of the world's fastest growing electric bike startups, which went to, I think it was about 20 staff to about 1,000 in only a couple of years. He ended up being chief of staff and has now moved back home to Wellington, New Zealand. He's currently an advisor of the New Zealand trade for NZT, the New Zealand trade enterprise, and he is keeping busy with good nature. Excited for this chat down in the middle of San Francisco. We decided to record this right in the middle of the city, outside, having a beer in the sun. So if you hear the ambient noise, that might be police going past, helicopters coming over the top, you know, buskers or cars getting in traffic, whatever it may be. Enjoy the ambience of San Francisco for me and my chat with Dave Schumach. Rebet Live, episode 330. We're here, as you're listening to this, we're in San Francisco. The sun is shining, we're outside a bar. They're playing some some early 2000s hip-hop inside. We've decided to get a bit more serious on the outside. I'm joined by the one and only Mr. Dave Schumach. How are you, mate? I'm well, Robert. Yourself? A couple of beers in. I'm feeling bloody great. <laughs> um, we were just talking about that before. We've known each other for over a decade, but never actually met. And we only realised that we haven't met until we actually met. Yeah, it took us five minutes to work out we <laughs> hadn't actually met, right? <laughs> How do you think the invent of digital communication has changed real relationships because i feel we have a real relationship but we haven't actually properly met in real life yeah it's bizarre i mean i think maybe there's good and bad right i think the the good is that um is that we were able to stay connected whereas otherwise we would have never seen each other again and life would have gone on like through this we were able to know what each other was up to loosely yeah the bad is that you don't actually know. Like within 10 minutes of talking to you, you know, I realize that your life is completely different to how I imagined it. <laughs> yeah, it's way more quiet. <laughs> <laughs> it's way more quiet. But then with the two toddlers, it's way, also way more intense. Yeah, indeed. Um, so I guess we'll, we'll, um, we'll go into a little bit. I'm, I'm interested to know. I love, I love hearing Kiwi stories where a local Kiwi's gone global, but then come back local right? So you've seen markets from a small stage, you've seen big brands at a bigger stage, and then now you're coming back to a growing business that's back in New Zealand. When you started out your career in brand or marketing or whatever it may be, did you think that after you got to the top, you would want to actually be back or come back? Like, was there a long-term strategy of like life where you're like, okay, I need to go long to meet this, or I need to do that. Like, how did your brain think about your progression of where you wanted to be physically? Because I think it's good, by the way. I, I love it. I love global talent. No, back completely. To... No, but my brain, wasn't, my brain wasn't that clever. I've actually got my, my, my wife to, um, to thank a lot for this. I think if it wasn't for her, I would have probably stayed 
in Auckland slash New Zealand most of my life. I just would have sort of worked my way up. I never had a clear plan. Never had any kind of, never thought about a top or certainly thought there was any way of getting close to it. It was more like just, I don't know, just at every moment sort of what felt right. But then, yeah, we had this moment. Um, so I was at DB Breweries. That's how we sort of yeah. <laughs> knew each other, but didn't know each other. And then we decided at 26 to move to Amsterdam, um, driven fully by my wife, Fran. She really wanted to see the world, try something new. And I sort of got pulled along, not kicking and screaming, but like, okay, let's, you know, let's go for this eventually. Well, Fran's obviously pretty special. Got to keep the wife happy. She's very that, yeah. special. Girlfriend and boyfriend back then. And, um, Anyway, so we, we, we quit our jobs um, in New Zealand. She was working at New Zealand Wine Growers. I was at Debbie Breweries, so we had good parties. <laughs> um, moved to Amsterdam. And the plan was sort of to be there for a year, year and a half, two years, you know, like experienced a different kind of life and different way of, you know, working. We wanted to be in one place. We hadn't been there before, but it just felt like... Yeah, the spot. Not London. Um, felt like a place where we could sort of be Sunny ourselves air. or yeah w w work out who we are without having like, like half our friends were in London at the time so it was sort of let's be somewhere where no one knows who we are that was part of the appeal and um, yeah 10 years later <laughs> we finally left with a couple of kids um, and with you know a whole a whole life that we'd built there and group of friends so it was yeah not planned at all basically when when you started the family, we were talking about this a little bit before, do you think it was more of an asset or a liability being so, if you were to do it, because obviously you were running, um, you were, I think, you know, chief of staff, um, and that was busy, 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 right? Yeah. But then you also got young family without other support there. If you were to redo it again, would you have the same title or a karma title be closer to fam? If you were to play it again, how would you potentially play it different? Because it seems like a lot to take on being far away logistically, yeah. having the big title, stress, pressure, all the rest of it. How do you, I guess, navigate that? And if you could play it back, would you do it different or pros and cons? Yeah, so when we first got pregnant, we, we were probably 30, roughly. And um, I was still at Heineken at that stage. So I was working for Heineken, the global office in Amsterdam. And I was in, it turned out to be my last year at Heineken. And I was, at that point, I was really edgy. Like I really wanted to leave the big corporate and work somewhere more where I believed in, you know, what we we're doing. It was good for the world, and you know, <laughs> that classic um, idealistic view. And it was, I, I felt it deep inside. But someone at the point gave me some great advice. I think it was probably Fran, my wife, which is don't change everything all at once, you know. Huh. And you know, because we were having a kid, and that was already enough of a change. It was, a, you know, a big change. And so, I ended up staying for Heineken for that year, and just saying, I'm just going to leave this for a year and just sit with it and focus on as much as I can on, on family and stuff. And that was awesome because I was quite comfortable there by that stage. So I was able to, and I ended up actually enjoying my job the most I ever had. Interesting. Um, I was, uh, in saying that, I, I still, fatherhood didn't come naturally to me. Like it took me a, a year or two to kind of warm up. How so? I don't know, it just. Um, you didn't, did you see yourself being a father? It was more of a balance thing or more of a career thing? No, it wasn't about career or anything. It was more just that it was something that wasn't necessarily inherently in me and something I had to learn um, and grow into. So yeah. I wasn't like day one, this awesome father or something. I had to kind of, and I'm still not, but I had to, like, I had to, yeah, I really had to learn a new skill. Um, 
over time. But but being having sort of that space and not being crazily um, whatever it is career driven that year, yeah. or, or just giving it time, that decision was was the, was a great thing. Did it change your Did it change your perspective on selfishness? Like for me, mm. I remember as soon as I had baby one, I was like, and it's not about me at all. Yeah. And this little, and but that whole mindset shift kind of it either happens instantly or it's going to get forced upon you. Yeah. Was was yours a thing of like prioritization of time or was it more you actually being the father of the time or like what was the like the hook that that kind of you couldn't get your head around? Yeah, I think that <laughs> if I'm honest, that felt selfishness thing is something that I'm I'm still working. I'm getting better at over time, but it definitely wasn't fixed on. It wasn't this ah uh, moment about oh now it's all about this kid. It was kind of. Easier from others, from, from maybe. What I've seen, yeah, um, yeah. It, it didn't come straight away for me, um, but it certainly that's the journey I've been on. My, mm. my my oldest boy is now eight. That's the journey I've been on since then. Is you know, I guess you know, every day trying to make it a bit less about me and a bit more about that, others. It's always such a, a challenge. Like so, so many um, parents, especially the, the parents, young parents, and you know, husbands, wives, whatever, is the balance of their of their like. Um, personal i guess not not balance or aspirate maybe it's like maybe professional aspirations versus personal commitments and it always feels like from the amount i've talked to it's a lot it feels like it's a lot more common that guys can still be like stuff it, i'm gonna go mountaintop whatever and and you know wives or the mums will be at home and even though it's supposed to be 50 50 so i, I definitely know what you mean because it happens you, you see it kind of everywhere because it's that struggle off right like we were just talking about before of like how you choose to allocate your time what's more important yeah, you could go from travel around the world for the next month or yeah. do you actually want to be there for your kids' recitals and, and stuff through that? That balance sort of comes with it. Do you think that having kids has made you a, a better leader of other people now? Um, Challenging? Or? Yeah, I think so. I, I definitely think I've learned uh, and continue to learn so much from my kids. This year I coached my five-year-old's um, soccer team. Yes. Um, <laughs> which was, yeah. So last year I coached my seven-year-old team. It was his first year, and that was great. But it was different because most of the kids in the team have been playing for a couple of years, so they already knew how to play. This year was a bunch of five-year-olds who had never played before in their life. And on day one, they were all, for different ways, different reasons, completely terrified, you know, and hiding behind their parents or this or that. And so it was really starting something from step one and you know everything I might have learned about leadership over the years I had to draw from all of that and then I've also learned so many new skills by doing that in terms of yeah how to take things really slowly um, actually goes back to what we said earlier as well like more than anything how to find ways to make it fun yeah because it doesn't matter when you find the game it doesn't matter at all about winning or goals or anything it's about can you find a way that people can enjoy this yeah, um, but that took me probably the whole season to actually like work that out. It, well, it, it's been at their level too with it, right? So you know, years ago when I was in the snowboard game, I did my snowboard instructor certificate, and they always said it was like safety, fun, learning, yeah. safety, fun, learning. If they're not safe, they're not going to have fun, and if they're not having fun, they're not going to learn. It's super simple. So true. Safety, fun, learning, and, the, and they just kept drilling it and drilling it and drilling it. And then years later, you kind of think about it. It's like, oh, when do I actually do long? It's learn. It's like, okay, well, I'm feeling safe or comfortable in an environment. I'm having fun. I'm, in, I'm enjoying it. And then I'm learning these new things. So, you know, but some people will go straight to the, the kill shot of the learn. But 
the people don't feel safe. They're not listening. Completely. They're not having fun, so they're disengaged. And then, you know, it's always, it's, it's funny how, we've got helicopters going on. What is that? Good old San Fran. Um, <laughs> sound like a helicopter. Yeah, safety, fun, learning. So do you, do you was it quite humbling? You can have all this like, I've run brands globally and I've done all this cool stuff. And then you're trying to navigate like, you know, 10, five-year-olds running around that are scared of whatever. <laughs> oh, it's so, it's so humbling. And that's the thing with, with, with being a parent as well, right? Like it's so much more multifaceted than, than business or whatever. Um, What's harder, parent or business? I, I, I think I, I think it's harder. I, I think I found it harder being a parent yeah. in terms of like really being the parent you want to be. Um, you know, I think what I've learned about myself in business over the years is that I've sort of managed to find out what a company needs from me and really try and be that person and put all my energy into that. Um, whereas it's not so simple in a way being a parent. Like there's, you know, you're dealing with, you're just having stuff thrown at you the whole time and you're reacting and- So dodging bullets and logistics yeah. and emotions and ages. Remaining and, yeah. present through that, but also having a bit of a strategy <laughs> through that, especially when they're young, it's, um, it can be really hard. Yeah. But the funny thing, and going back to the, 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 the football, the, the one thing I see that seemed to connect most was on the first day when we were all gathered around and we pulled everyone together before we started. And I could see how nervous they were. And I was too, of course, I was shitting myself. And the parents are then watching you to be like, okay, well, what are you going to do? The parents, yeah, and so I said, <laughs> I brought all the kids in and we sat down and I brought them all in and I said, you know, how are you feeling, blah, blah. And, and I said, I imagine you're feeling a bit nervous because I am too. This is also the first time I've done this kind of thing. And, and I said, do you know what? And they said, what? And I said, look at your parents. And they all turned around and looked at them. And I said, they're all really nervous too. They're all like, this is big for them. They're, they're, yeah. they're feeling really scared right now because they've made a choice. They want you to enjoy it, blah, blah. And the, and the kids were like, I could tell at the start they didn't believe me. They were like, really? And I was like, yeah, it's really true. And then it seemed to help in terms of we, we were all in something together. Yeah. This, this thing of unity, right? But it's almost at that point of like own the emotion. Yeah. You know, when you can own the emotion, if you can own the emotion, you can own the moment. Yeah, exactly. If you can own the moment, at least you then know what's it, because stuff will be coming at you. Yeah. Um, now a little segue from leadership lessons from that. Now, um, with Good Nature, you run a team of 65? Yep. 65-ish. When you had a team of none, and then now you were 65 humans who, you know, they're, they're livelihoods their calendars their, their schedule their resource their, their everything is based on these directions that you you are then choosing how, what have you had to learn about how to manage yourself to then managing over 50 people like did it come as in a shock at once or did it grow over time like how was your progression to i guess you know bigger business leadership for for teams that are doing big things yeah so i think i'm quite new in this role so i only joined good nature um eight months ago so I'm very much still I feel very much still like a rookie and kind of you know learning and growing every day I think but I think what I've sort of brought to it is I was on this journey um, in Amsterdam at a company called Vermouth we were like a or they were like a we were like a um, it is it is. <laughs> it's, funny that, no, no. it's funny that because you, you say the segue because you, you're going from when your title isn't who you are, but you're exactly. in a position within a company. Yeah. The headspace of like, are you in it or, yeah. It's, it's interesting hearing you even just do that. It's classic. also these days, I think, you know, if you're lucky enough, you're able to really choose what you do um, or have some 
degree of control over what you do. And then if you, if you really choose for it, then it becomes part of your identity. And so mm. I was at Bumble for six years. I joined as like the 19th employee and left as number 1000. And so it was it got this, that big. Yeah, it got that big. So it was this crazy journey. And, and so it really became a big part of my identity as well. Huh. Um, and I kind of joined, so I joined as the CMO, so in charge of marketing. Um, we were sort of global, but 19 people, so we're very small. Well, you, you, you sent a bike to Argentina and Australia. It's like, we're in two continents. Yeah, <laughs> it, was a bit, it was a bit like that. And actually, funnily enough, speaking of, of and this is not being down of them off at all, it was more just that stage of a startup. Like, speaking of kids' football, it was a bit like kids' football teams when I joined. So, you know, no one really had job descriptions. and Everyone's a slashy. Yeah, and the ball goes across the field, and then you all run after it and try and fix that problem. And then it goes, you know, it's a very reactive. Um, it's but, early business. It's startup hustle. It's early business. And I had and been at corporates the whole time. So, I had, so nothing I had learned prepared me for any of that. And I think, to cut a long story short answering your question, like I kind of learned through that journey that the only way to help people is to have your shit sorted yourself in some kind of way, to be like organized and structured and more than anything focused, to like look at the hundred things and go, what's the one thing that we actually have to do right now? The prioritization for it. Yeah. I've never saw that, I've never thought about that analogy of, yeah, because I know exactly, you watch a, a kid's rugby game, a kid's basketball game, a kid's soccer game, and it's just a swarm of flies yeah. going to the thing. Yeah. And then when they slowly start get better, better, so with soccer, you know, I used to play soccer for New Zealand when I was younger, then it's like, cool, you got that. And then in basketball, you'd have the, the triangle, yeah. and, you, and you start to see space and everyone knowing their, their roles. So that, you know, I've, never, I've never saw that transition between sport to business like that, which is, which is quite cool because it's very, very accurate. Yeah, because now I look at my, my eight-year-old boy, Rufus, who's also playing soccer, and, and already their team is starting to, they've got positions, and they've got, maybe not strategies, but they're able to, they're able to play things out. And then, you know, and so seeing a business grow through those stages, and I don't know, maybe someone knows how to do it, but from what I saw, there's no way to, you can't cheat that growth either. You can't skip a grade. Yeah. <laughs> you, you've got to kind of just... Learn so as you grow. There's something to that as well, because when you're looking at most of these startups and stuff as well, they get they go through a Series A, they get a big injection of cash, and all of a sudden, egos change, title change, priorities change, strategy changes. There's a lot of um, things that can happen really fast, which changes the culture and the yeah. whole the whole thing. So I think I think you are right. It's once again, it's like how how is that 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 leadership and their security with what they feel about the direction of the company that regardless exactly. what happens, it's part of that not pivoting and changing it. And that, I mean, I'm, I'm imagining a lot of these other startups that, you know, go through these fast growth things, they don't get through it because and yep. it won't be the business, it's probably the people within it, right? And going from 20 to 1,000 is massive. So logistically, how did that change? Like, I'm guessing you went from, you know, a nice little office and all of a sudden you need, you've now like 1,000 people. Like, it was quite fun. Yeah. Talk so, about the scale. And so it was a D2C business. So we, we only sold our bikes online and we had a few brand stores. So there's like three or four now in the US, maybe 10 in Europe, um, you know, one in Tokyo type thing. But it was mainly selling online. Um, and so when I joined, we were in this building um, beside a park called the Ulster Park in Amsterdam. And we were a, a tiny part of that building. Um, and our founders had a couple of other businesses which were already successful in profit making. 
and they had most of the building and then their profits funded our significant loss. Classic. <laughs> Classic. And we, we basically sat around, actually a table kind of like this one, like basically two long bench seats. Um, that was our head office. And on that head office was one person in finance, one in customer support, one in sales. I was the CMO, but <laughs> I was also the only person in marketing together with Tessa, who was our intern. Uh, it was a bit like that. And so when something went wrong, the amazing thing was you had all the people there to solve the problem. And then, you know, we started to grow and we had these big success moments through launches um, and where basically each launch sort of doubled down the size of the company and then it would start growing, growing. And eventually we ended up taking over that building. And so- What and happened to the, the founders of the companies? So they, they moved to a new building. They Got it. They got kicked out. Probably resented us further by then because we were making an even bigger <laughs> loss. But, um, but we also needed the space. And it was, it was clear by that stage that Vomolf could really, you know, disrupt the entire bike industry and be a bit the Tesla of e-bikes. Like we, we really, we could see it playing out from there. Um, but I, I still remember this moment, the moment when everyone started saying to me, Dave, like we, we've got to move from this big long table. We've got to move. We need more space. And I, I fought against it for about three months because I like the table. I love the table and I love the, I, speaking of psychological safety, like I felt so safe in that we'd just spent two years building up this unit and finally I felt the tiniest bit of <laughs> psychological safety and I was terrified about then, you know, risking that all, but you've got to keep on risking it all. But that's the, that point is, you know, you, you look at, you know, startups versus corporate, the risk averse yep. nature of it, the amount of people that are in these positions and so many times, and it's the classic you'll see on LinkedIn where they're not worried about the next quarterly report or the next product that comes out. No. They are concerned about, will this increase or decrease the status I have on my LinkedIn profile title yeah. for what it has for me? Because, and if it's gonna risk that, stuff it. Yeah. And it becomes that risk aversion thing, right? So that psychological safety with it. So even though it was a startup where usually there's kind of usually no psychological safety because it's just, no. I mean, going from 20 to 1,000. very exposed. Is, it's very exposed, right? The What support mechanisms are around you to, to make it a safer space psychologically for you to do that? Was it more just you versus yourself or I you think, didn't know what would happen? So I think what ended up happening is, so I was hired as the, as the CMO, like heading up marketing, but I, to be honest, I was never that great at marketing. And I disagree, mate. You did some great work. If I did some, okay, you know, no, but it was never like, there, there were people much better than me at it. And, and so what happened over time is I hired some awesome people who ended up building up this function, mainly themselves and, and with my support, which I think is exactly what you should be aiming for as a manager, actually. And um, where, where my sort of superpower came in was actually, we had these two founders, they're brothers. Um, they are brothers. They fight like brothers, um, but they're amazing. And... Um, you know, they're very much on the product and on and, and the vision and how to make this thing huge. And that was never me. But what I was able to do was sort of be the, I guess, the glue or the click-in point between them and this growing business. The so, yang. Yeah, the so, yang. So interesting, from a founder's perspective, they were both on the same page as visionaries together, but didn't have the execution side for, with ops? Yeah, they were reasonable at the execution side, but it was more on the, on the people side. It wasn't necessarily yeah. their passion to really... Um, pull this team together, hold it together to, to get plans down on paper. Because usually the type of person that runs marketing would be more creative, you, you, yeah, more no, free so, flowing. So, no, so, they, so I'm not necessarily that. Like they had, 
hundreds of ideas every single day. You know, we were, we were never, we, you know, Vamolf was never short on ideas. Um, but how but, do you transition from, because marketing to head of people, was it head, head of people, right? Head of, well, it was sort of the chief role, of, chief it of, became chief of staff. Chief so of it staff. was, it's sort of, a, <laughs> we ended up making up the role based on, so they were the, they were the co-CEOs. Um, but very much on that visionary aspect, whereas my role was really around that kind of day-to-day -day running of the company. So I ran our management team. I, um, the strategy, I never ever thought of it as mine, but I was the one who was able to distill down that strategy, mainly from them, into something super clear and then um, bring that to life for the wider company so everyone knew what we were focused on and why. Well, that's that unity of purpose within the organization, Correct. right? And, and sometimes the hardest thing is distill distilling that down. It's not necessarily dumbing it down, but you need to be able to have a succinct way so everyone knows where you're actually heading and what yeah. you're doing. And it is very tough for sometimes creatives to have that for people who, who are never Completely. Had, yeah. With and so, I mean, we, we just got lucky. The three of us has got really lucky to find each other at that moment because I was always clear about how awesome they were and how the company, you know, absolutely needed them. And, and then they, were, they, they saw that I brought something which, which we needed and which, and which they didn't necessarily have. And so, it, like, it, it wasn't always easy, but it, but it really did work. And yeah, it was fun. What was the, um, the biggest shift that you realized going from a chief marketing role of a global company to a, a chief of staff? Was there a big head shift of like gear change where you had to think about more mentally or what was the? Um, no, I mean, it happened so naturally. Like I think looking back, I was probably in that more that chief of staff role for the last three or four years because- but Marketers don't usually do that. No. Um, yeah. Because how it worked was, T. Sue was one of our co-founders. Like he had a, a brilliant marketing brain and a brilliant creative brain. So I sort of saw that quite early and just on big projects, just clicked him directly into the marketing team. Um, and then there were other parts of the business which needed me a lot more. And so I was just always, yeah, where I felt the business needed me most. Mm -hmm. And then eventually we ended up structuring a role around that. Got it. So most you know, small New Zealand businesses, they want to grow to these big things. If you're a Kiwi company with 10 staff, 20 staff, and you've been in one that's gone to a thousand, where would you prioritize your energy to make sure you can scale that type of growth that fast in a safe way, not only psychologically, but also potentially commercially for, for an organization? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know the answer. Like, I think Vumbolf, I, I wouldn't say we did it in a safe way. Like, for we were like a hardware meets software company, doubling our revenue and our and our you know number of bikes sold every year, and so it never ever felt safe. We were we were always on the edge of our capabilities, our knowledge, our everything. And it was that was a. a purpose to keep pushing yeah it was yeah. what we saw yeah it was sort of a choice like we saw the opportunity that was right there and we were like we're gonna you kind of have this choice you can go slowly and more safely um take less risks and grow at 10 percent a year but the, the big danger is that you that someone else comes in and grabs that opportunity we said we want to grab the opportunity we know that we're going to get things wrong along the way but we think it's worth going fast well if we um, don't someone will if we don't someone else will and then we'll always kick ourselves that we that we could have had that and we didn't. So it was a choice. Um, so I guess my advice to Kiwi companies is, oh, what is it? I think more than anything, it's dream big. Like I think 
what I've seen coming back to New Zealand, we have some amazing companies, amazing people, amazing ideas, but a lot of people seem to cap their ambition at, I don't know, let's say it's this selling for a hundred million dollar mark. Interesting. That that's, that, that is, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's incredible. But the greatness is so much, there's well, a there's, there's higher limit than that. If yep. you look at the, the impact on the world and some of these ideas that can change the world in a positive way, a hundred million, you know, on a global level is actually not, probably not going to shake up their industries the way it could. So, yeah. Do you yeah. think that comes down to internal bravery for the founder to think bigger and own it? Or do you think it's more, it's been like set in stone because for years they felt that this is because I'm in New Zealand, it has to be this way. Like, do you think it's more like grandfathered in, in terms of this mentality? Yeah, I don't actually know. I think it maybe it's, I don't think it's the founders themselves because, but I think part of it potentially is, is the investor world around it. That puts the mental limitations on the founder of what they think success is. So it's yeah. unrealistic or potentially way lower. Well, standards. if you look at where we're sitting in San Francisco right yeah. now, right? And you consider <laughs> risk appetites here, you know, I'm oh, not saying it's a good thing because there's a downside of how it is here as well, but the a great idea here, the feeling is that it can become the next Airbnb or the next Uber or the next whatever. Well, it feels like from my experience is they change the word in America to when, not if. Yeah. Like almost everything is like, when this thing blows up, it's going to do this. Yeah. And in New Zealand, they'll be like, oh, if, if we get this next round for half a million and blah, 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 whatever. It, it, it's like, it, I, th I think you're onto something there, Dave. It, it does feel it's mindset driven. Yeah. from a founder's perspective but and a bit of both is good like here yeah. there's also a lot of hot air which you know, <laughs> i don't like as well so the new zealand you know that humbleness and realisticness if that's a word even is is a good thing in that as well but i think combining the two together is where the, the magic is well i remember years ago when um you know i was doing the shared workspaces with tech startups and there's a there's a small company in there at the time which was called notable pdf which is now turned to cami and they've got like 30 million users and all mm. sorts of crazy stuff it's insane they just got named as one of time 100's most influential companies of the world wow insane and and i gave them their first office next to my office uh years ago but what was interesting in 2017 16 15 when they moved in was they got someone on their board who was um, ex-Google and I was saying oh it's you know crazy you got this capital like so when are you going to the states like when are you moving over to Silicon Valley and you know blah blah like oh no we're not moving anywhere and I was like what they said yeah um, our boards told us that yeah. in the world of technology it's better for us commercially to stay in New Zealand we've got higher retention rates for people that are people that are coming through we've got better uh, skill sets and capabilities um and if there's international capital we don't need to to mess around with it so mm -hmm. they made that decision consciously 2000 or so six or seven years ago and it's worked out amazing for them so yeah my thing with it now is now in 2022 only now after covid a lot more people are starting to go oh we don't need to go overseas we can yeah. actually potentially do it from and it was just funny if it wasn't for covid maybe that headspace for a lot more of these founders would have actually stayed the same of like we have to leave we have to leave we have sure. to leave to, to make it i don't know if that's potentially the case anymore well it also links with this whole manufacturing thing right like there's a big trend from what i understand you know back towards manufacturing in new zealand that we can do it better we can do it cost effectively we can you know have that control over you know and add that value well it's that fear on resiliency right because i yeah. remember a friend of mine runs this clean tech energy thing and he was um you know partnering with the u.s defense force and when trump was in power he had this word of resiliency 
Mm. We want to be self-sufficient and resilient for our own space and our own. And they were trying to think about how they could be not re be reliant on other people. So when, you know, yeah. when he's talking about America first, from a public perspective is one thing, but for those that are in the mix, it's like, no, he's actually talking about resiliency. And then you look through COVID, the chips not being able to get things, supply yeah, exactly. chains turned to shit. All these other things start to snowball effect down of like, we can't get ball bearings to make the and windmills go or the, whatever this yeah. thing may be. Do you feel at a macro now, I think it's the globalization of things that we'll go more from global back to local, but in a more high tech way? Or like, how do you think this plays out manufacturing wise? I think you kind of said it. Like, I don't think there's one size fits all, but I think it's this, I think everyone sort of opened their minds to there's not, there's not, there's not one way anymore. It's not mm. that if you grow up in New Zealand with a great idea, you have to leave the country to see that idea to life. It's not that you have to produce in any one place. I think, you know, I think it's more like, what's your idea? What's your vision? What's the best way to achieve that? Where do you want to do it? How do you want to do it? And then back yourself to do it that way. Mm. So to me, it's also, maybe that is through COVID that we've got a bit of a newfound confidence around we can kind of do it in the way that we want to, whatever that looks like. And stay here. It feels, yeah, so yeah. You, you may be right. COVID has made new founders more confident for global markets or aspirations earlier yeah. than traditionally in the past because potentially some local VCs or investors that won by default because they were the loudest ones in the room yeah. giving false expectations or thing of where they could actually go. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, it was quite eye-opening for me. So that my last two years at, at Vimhoof, we, we actually moved back to New Zealand randomly at the end of 2019, so right before COVID. And then it wasn't planned, um, but I ended up working remotely for Vimhoof for that two years. And it was so weird because we grew in that time. We had a lot of growth. So we grew from about 300 to 900 people through that COVID period. We had, you know, we were one of the big winners of COVID. Um, those 600 people that joined didn't go into one of our offices for a year because everyone was locked down in Europe and the US in particular. And so I was running these like global stand-up meetings from my you know second floor of our house in Alfredo Bay and talking to people who were all in their houses too. You know, And we were able to run and grow a company like that, which two years beforehand, you would have said that's just completely impossible. So there's something to that, right? Um I'd always thought before COVID, when I physically wasn't in the room, when, when my feet weren't physically in the ground in New Zealand, I would be not be able to add value, yeah. so I felt like it was stuffed. And then what happened when COVID hit is I went, huh, maybe the liability is the asset. Yeah. And my headspace shifted to, oh, I'm currently stuck in a room with a desk and a chair and a laptop and an internet connection. And all my competitors and everyone else I do business with is currently still in a room with a desk. Exactly. And so I go, maybe the liability of my distance is actually an asset because I actually know how this game works. Completely. So what I wanted to ask, and I've asked quite a few people about it, um, but you'd, I'd be interested in your take on Dave, is, is through COVID, companies shrunk and lost and grew and all the rest of it, but how was the business able to scale 600 people virtually for people that had never been into a business, like how do you scale culture of an organization yeah. without physically being there? No one's been able to answer this really awesomely yet. And I, and I think you've done it. So I'm quite oh. interested. <laughs> well, firstly, I, I won't say we did it perfectly at all. Like we, well, we, we, you know. Well, but you've done it. We made a lot of mistakes. I think at, when we got to a hundred people, so going back a couple of years before that, 
that was a big moment for us where we we've been scaling until then we we had this culture where everyone we thought we all knew what it was but it wasn't written down it was sort of this thing like you know we know what from is of course it's a thing it's a yeah. thing yeah and then you hire for that and then it's all fine but then at 100 the wheels started falling off we started realizing that actually I, I i kind of had a feel that you know for how everything was but no one else did and that gap started growing and so at that point we had to get a lot more intentional on what is our culture and super simple like what are the three points of our culture triangle what does that mean how do we hire for that how do we make decisions based on that how do we communicate decisions based on that um you know so we started moving towards quite structured you know weekly stand-ups and, and longer monthly meetings with the whole company etc and i think looking back that really helped us because then by the time we hit COVID, we had those things in place already we already we had, we, had, we had just sold like just kind of communicated to the whole company everyone had been part of it as well like what the culture was um what we mean by that how we, all, all those things and so our managers and our, and our key people as well also knew what they were looking for when they hired. Um, so, so it's the framework of it. Because yeah. one of, I, I was, you know, through COVID, I was watching lots of people, you know, start new jobs or this and that. And I'd be asking, oh, like, so like, what's the onboarding like? Like, yeah, man, I got like a package in the mail. And I got a laptop and then I got an email address sent to my Gmail and then I signed in and I was like in. I was like, well, how does it differentiate between the hundred other competitors that are doing the same type of stuff? Yeah. And he's like, well, it was nothing really. So it became a lot of the bad leadership it looked like became real transactional without no culture virtually. And then it was kind of like, oh, here's some, here's some stuff. And now you're part of the team. Here's a logo, here's a pen, yeah. here's a logo. And it's like, well, what's the, and so I was asking um, uh, Craig Hudson from Zero this, he was uh, MD, CEO at the time for New Zealand. And they would have um, uh, these little Slack channels for different things. And he would go and put personal videos while everyone was in lockdown each different like slack channel for different people and and show like a more of a yeah i guess like a, a human tra side. transparent or human side so it wasn't this perception of this ivory tower stuff it was like here is a human who's doing this thing yeah and he's localized but i haven't seen many being able to fully fully crack it so say if you were to do you think it's the framework that was in place that you learned there would be a sustainable way to scale culture let's say from a thousand to ten thousand oh. like it, it, would there be anything missing that you'd maybe try and dial out or do you think that we need like do you think people need people or can you do you think can business go global without yeah so th so that's a great question so my big learning out of all this and the reason i ended up leaving vamov at the end of last year after two years working remotely not seeing a colleague was I really miss people. Like interesting. I love people. I need people. Like I'm on my own. People need people. Yeah, yep. and I became super efficient. Um, and I was dropping my kids at school every day and picking them up. And I was very involved. And I could surf at lunchtime. Like there were a lot of good things about it. But the the negatives outweighed the positives. Like I, I just so? well, I, I really missed that connection. I missed that tension that you get from having people around. I missed energy. Yeah, and it sounds so cheesy, but like literally the the, the water cooler moments. Yeah, um, yeah, I miss them, and so like my big, you know, uh, I guess outtake from the whole thing is a bit of both is good. Like we, you know, we've been taught, you know, there's a lot of great things about this virtual world, and we can maximize it. The great thing about Malfoy is we can have these onboardings with people from you know like hundred new people in ten different locations. And all the key people could talk to them because all of a sudden they didn't have to be in the same room. We could do it virtually. And so they got a lot more than they were getting beforehand if they were joining the team in San Francisco, for example. Got it. 
Um, but you cannot beat being in an office together and bumping into someone and having chat about something or, and that was in the end why I joined Good Nature. A, because I massively believe in the potential of the company and the mission and all those things, but also B, because you can see I kind of realized that I'm nothing without, <laughs> without having people around me. So to that, right, there's a lot of tension at the moment after lockdowns all over the world, some are saying you have to come back to the office, some yeah. are saying work from anywhere, some smart businesses are using it as an opportunity as an HR talent grab from a bunch of different competitors to say, we'll take your talent, work from anywhere, stay in Idaho on the farm and do whatever, yeah. we'll pay you the same rates as the city. If you could take a thousand person company that was fully virtual around the world, a thousand person company that was fully hybrid across do whatever, work from anywhere, in and out, mandatory, whatever, and then a thousand people in person, if there were like three different options and one on each thing, over a 10 year, three, five, 10 year period, who would you put your money on to be a better business that would actually last in the long term for yeah. 20, 30, 40, 40 years and why? I don't know the answer. It, de it depends massively on the business, but me personally, I would choose for the, the business where the people are together. The whole time or hybrid? No, so uh, like uh, hybrid, but a day a week, predom day a month. predominantly together Okay. Um, with flexibility. You yes. know, so I don't know, I'm making this up, but that where you're in the office between three and four days a week, um, but in and around that, that doesn't mean you have to be there nine to five. You've got flexibility around that. You can do stuff you have to do, but valuing um, that connection, valuing that bumping into each other, valuing, you know. Those like, moments. I'm so, to be honest, I'm so sick of Zoom meetings where you've got 10 people Zooming <laughs> in, or, or these days where you have six people in a room zooming in four others from outside and those meetings are again they're efficient but you you don't get to the meat of it you don't have the fights that you used to have yeah um, so i come back to not sustainable no and, and and it's tough because you know cost of living are increasing like I, I fully understand all the reasons for virtual work in terms of people having more time with their families and all that i also see the benefit of that myself um but Personally, I really just think you can't get past, you know, being together and the connections you get from that and the community you build around that. There's something to that, right? Because I remember through, by the end of, you know, the COVID stuff, like I, yes, I can do my work. Like I, I kind of prefer working alone. I just like lock yeah. me in a room, do my thing. I'm fucking sweet. But it got to a spot I kind of got itchy of like, I was missing the, the mind table tennis. Yeah. You know, like, what's your idea? How can I expand off it? What's that like? I, I needed more inputs exactly. that wasn't virtually, yeah. so I could challenge myself to be like, okay, well, what, what's that plus one? What's that plus one? What's that plus one? And I, I'm, I, it's exactly that. Yeah, but and I look in, um, say, like commercial real estate, for example, you've got a whole bunch of different places now. They're coming up to the end of the leases. They're looking to downsize their footprint by 30, 40%, save all this money, blah, blah, blah. There's these kind of short term little plays that are going on it, and I'm just kind of, what's the best thing for the people to get the best work? And if, and if I was an employee and one's like, hey, fully virtual, I could be a pro to yourself. Like, could be efficient, but maybe not the best. I could be like a B, B plus. Yeah. Hybrid yeah. or in person, maybe I'd be a C because I get hating force and I need some freedom. But it's going to be this balance when you almost can't put everyone in the same box. No, this so, is the thing. So do you think... And it's also about roles, right? Like yeah. my, my role, I need people. If you're an app developer you need people a lot less. I still would argue you need people, but a lot less. And so, again, one size fits all probably doesn't work. Did you did you feel hypocritical that you were the chief of staff but couldn't see any staff? 
<laughs> well, yeah, and, and again, that's that's at the end why I left because I also thought it was the best thing for Vamalf. Is you know, I no, I didn't through that period because every single person was on their own, yeah, in their own bedroom, and so we we were the same. Um, but then, as towards the end of last year, as people started going back to the office, at that point, I kind of had a choice to make: like, do I keep doing this role and probably travel for half the year for the next five years? To, to be with these people and then the rest do it virtually or do I yeah um, make a tough call and and join a new company where I can um, get that balance better where I can get that balance better also for my for my for my family life yeah so before we finish I'm keen to ask you about this something that I've found really interesting between elite sports people ex-military or SAS and CEOs <laughs> and it's this this something around there's the transition of like um, sports mentality and mindset into business. Mm. So, you know, for those who aren't aware, you've run a whole bunch of crazy shit with your ultra marathons and your all sorts of, you know, cold swimming and your crazy <laughs> fitness life with your flipping, what are you on, a keto diet or something? What are you doing some of that? I'm not on a keto diet, <laughs> no. <laughs> I promise you. Um, but all that, what have you learned from, I guess, elite sports performance into high-level, high-functioning business execution and output what's a bridge that you've taken from one world into the other i guess <laughs> i guess firstly i'm in no way an elite sports person no but the fact that but yeah. if you said to an average person hey i can do an ultra marathon yeah, 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 yeah. The, the, that's not really normal so the bridge for me is is around resilience you know like huh. my ultra marathons when i've done them i I do them averagely. I, I do finish them, but I'm, I'm never... Okay, but how... how just talk through the, the stats. What is an ultra marathon compared to a regular marathon? Yeah, so it's longer than a real marathon, but... So 2K swim? Is it? No, no, no. no, that's, no it? that's an Ironman. Oh, an ultra marathon. So the, the next one I'm doing is, is, is 100 miles. So it's like a... Jeez. 168Ks. And you go very slowly. So it'll, you know, if I'm lucky, it'll take me 32 or 33 hours to do it. Yeah, that's not normal, dude. Uh, it's not normal. <laughs> I'll go, you know, you go through a night. You, and, but for me, I have actually learned a lot from that that I take back to, to business in terms of if you look at that as the whole thing, yeah, you kind of hyperventilate and you would never do it. But when you're doing those things, you just break it down into tiny increments. It's like, firstly, I'm lucky enough to be here in this part of the world and how amazing is that? I have a body that can move. How grateful am I? I also feel that, but my body says, hey, Rebecca, don't run 100Ks. Yeah, but, if, but <laughs> this is true. But, if, but So the way I break it down is like, okay, there might be a checkpoint in 12 or 13K. It's like, that's all I'm thinking about. It's like, how can I manage my body through to that point? What am I going to do there? Eat an elephant. Who am I going to see? Yeah, how do you eat an elephant? It's exactly how do you eat an elephant. And, and I think business is the same. If you, if you go, we want to disrupt the whole industry and become a $100 million company and this and this and this, then it's like, well... I've got a 1% chance of that happening. Like, Have you got to a million yet? Yeah, but also, you know, everything would say don't start in the same way with an ultramarathon. Like, don't start. That's, that's crazy. But if you... But I don't think that's... Res is that resiliency? Well, or, to me, the resilience part... focus? It's focus. But it, to me, the resilience part is it never goes in a linear line in business or in an ultramarathon or in, you know, professional snowboarding or whatever. Like, you always have hitbacks along the way. You always have setbacks. You always have things that don't, that you can't imagine that don't go as planned. And when those happen, for me anyway, or every fiber of my being wants to give up. Yeah. 
you're like, oh, yeah, I tried, but that happened. Fuck this, I'm done. Yeah. I shouldn't swear. Um, I swear all the time. It's okay. <laughs> but um, so, you know, it's, it's really about how do I, yeah, I guess also an, anticipating problems and yeah. then and then going, they're going to happen and we're going to find ways to solve this and we're going to get there. See, that's that's the, the, the part there. You know it's going to turn to shit. Something's going to happen mm. and you're already aware. It's like that I call them pre-mortems. So before I do yeah. any project, I'm like, okay, how could it die? How will it die? And then when that happens, will I be surprised? Yeah. And after I talk myself through in that, my head before I start it, when that thing happens, I'm like, oh no, I, I thought about this. So because I thought about that, it's totally fine now. I can deal exactly. with it. Exactly. Opposed to like, this is going to be the most perfect thing ever. Yep. This is going to be smooth sailing. <laughs> and then it happens, you're like, and it all, all turns to shit. Uh, that's so true. It's, yeah, so, so much is about mindset, right? So how do you navigate that on an ongoing basis like with balance right because you've got your work stuff you got your whanau stuff you got your friend stuff you got your, your and then you've got your your personal stuff yeah but the timing of how do you train for 100k like you're probably going for three hour right runs like what are you doing i should be i haven't really done that two hour yet. runs like so I've, I've still got five months before that race so i'll kind of yeah, I always say with those things, the hardest part is entering. Like once you've entered, you're like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. <laughs> I don't know how, but I'll. In that time, I trust myself enough to know that I'll train well enough to get it done. Yeah, but th so that will be like once a week going for a. When I was younger, I did these things. I used to um, take it way too seriously, train way too hard. You know, like Send de it. deny yeah. myself of pleasures along the way. Whereas these days, it's like just you know, live a good life, stay fit, stay healthy, and. Um, I don't know, approach it in a different way. If you weren't, last question, if you weren't ultra marathon running, do you think you'd be a, does fitness make you a better or worse CEO and why? For me, for sure, it makes me better. Like my running every week, even if it's just a 15 minute run before work, it's like a way of processing stuff. Like my best ideas come when I run the things I'm struggling with, they, they work their way through while I run. Um, if I didn't have that, I would hold a lot more. And So it's, the pro it's your processing time. It's my processing See, I'll time. do that when I drive. Yeah. It's, a, it's a lot easier than running. Completely. <laughs> yeah, that's true. If I drive with no radio or music on, yeah. and I sit silent on a longer trip, within like 20 minutes, my brain's already like catching up, processing. Yeah. My, it's like, my I love it the best when I'm physically restrained in some way yeah but mentally free that's also why i love road trips like with friend my wife we if we're ever on the road for six hours we love it because it's the the big life things you almost save it up for those mm. moments and then you've got time to kind of work your way through it i, I love both facing forwards and you know it, it's not intimidating it's yeah do you think more about sorry last last question <laughs> i'm just intrigued when you go on these road trips, do you think what percentage is thinking to the future, what could be or reset or to the past of what you've learned? How do you split that energy? It's almost, for us, it's almost always future focused. It's like, what's the, how do we want to play it from here? What's, it's all about that. We talked earlier about kids and stuff. Like it's all about that balance thing. Like how do we, yeah. how can we find a way to balance our work, which we admit we love doing and which gives us good energy and, and we think um, is great. Um, but how do we balance that with being the parents we want to be, with being part of the community? So it's, it's, it's and that's never ever in balance, but it's like, yeah. how do we, what, what do we want to do in the next, whatever it is, three months, six months to nudge that more in the right direction? And on that.
that note, legend. 